SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, before we go any further, go ahead and give yourself a pat on the back, you out there listening. You made it through one of what felt like the longest off-seasons in a long time between all the uncertainty of how we were going to get to this point with COVID and Delta variant and all that fun stuff. But week zero is in the books, and this weekend we have one of the full, uh, one of the only the full state football entire season. Uh, Joe, Eric Henry here with you once again, as we have been the last few years to talk football. And Eric, I am just so gosh darn excited that we have reached this point in the year. Gosh darn it is right, Joe Londergan. It is a pleasure to be back on these fine airwaves in the midst of a college football season. I know that we're going to get ready to preview week zero, the informal week zero in college football nowadays, but we have a game that's already been played. We have a few games that's already been played, but as far as Conference USA, just one. But just that tiny little morsel had us searching, Joe. I'm sure you were amongst us, you know, finding ways to (laughs) watch the UTEP game. Uh, Just 20 seconds on that. And obviously, you know, for those of you who hear this podcast, you know, UTEP opened their year against New Mexico State. Obviously, uh, NMSU is a independent, right? So not necessarily the same TV deal as Conference USA. It's not as easy as just heading to ESPN3 to consume that one. So it had all of us scrambling to figure out where we're going to sign up for the subscription service that was hosting the game. I won't name the actual subscription service because I don't want to slander those folks. I'm sure they got to make a living too. But luckily, through the grace of God, KVIA, the local ABC affiliate there in Las Cruces and El Paso, uh, serving both municipalities there, so both cities, I should say, uh, had a stream on their website. So shout out to the fine folks there and got a chance to get that tiny little morsel. Uh, I was up till 1 a.m. watching Conference USA football on Saturday because we are back. So gosh darn it, I'm excited too. <laughs> the only uh, adjectives I really use uh, are not adjectives, expressions that I would use on a podcast where I can't swear. So <laughs> with that, uh, let's let's talk more about this UTEP uh, New Mexico State game that we both uh, watched over the weekend. Um, look, UTEP ran New Mexico State off the field. And if, if you're a USA fan, you have to be um, excited about the progress that UTEP clearly the course of the offseason. Uh, for me, Jacob Cowing and Gavin Hardison both look fantastic, and that's ultimately what propelled uh, Utah to start the season 1-0 for the second straight year. And further, Eric, like we both know New Mexico State is terrible. But the first step for UTEP to not being a terrible team themselves is to run legitimately terrible teams off the field. And they did that. So once we get to conference pro, uh, conference play, that, of course, is going to be the real indicator of just how much this team has improved. But based on this game, I think the optimism can continue for a bit longer in El Paso. No, listen, I would absolutely agree. And you made the point there, which is the key point, because when we've talked about UTEP over the past few years, yes, we've talked about their scarcity in terms of wins, but also the teams that they've beaten – aren't necessarily, you know, world beaters, any stretch of the imagination. So it helps that they came out and did exactly what they did. Got to a bit of a slow start in the first quarter or so. Penalties 
or certainly something that could be cleaned up. But the fact that they didn't have this as a three point or whatever margin they beat Houston Baptist a couple of years back, right? I want to say it was 2019. They opened the year with a win against Houston Baptist and, you know, barely scooped that win. Maybe it was Houston Baptist or Abilene Christian. Abilene Christian might've been last year, but nevertheless, they ran Mexico state off the field. And this is what gives me as a conference USA fan and someone who covers this league encouragement, Jacob Cowing, Justin Garrett, we've known since last year that those guys really emerged, but it was the play of first off, Three-headed monster. We've talked about Deion Hankins at running back. Ronald Awad is a guy who made a little bit of noise last year, and he really had an excellent game. But the return of Cordres Wadley, someone who really was emerging in the Conference USA landscape as far as running backs is concerned, in 2018, he had over 600 yards, and then injuries got in the last two years. But he's back. I want to say this is his sixth or seventh year. I want, I want to say it's sixth year. But he ran like a man who has not seen much of the field over the past two seasons. I'll joke, you had a chance to catch him in the second half. He was finishing all his runs downhill, delivering punishment. So if they can get that, and then along with praise Amahule, you give yourself an outside shot when you look at their schedule. We don't want to get too far ahead. It's just week zero, almost at week one. But if all the things you said, Joe, they went out there, the, the, the penalties you want to clean up, they left some points on the field, sure, but they really decisively beat Utah, beat uh, New Mexico State. So that was encouraging. Yeah, Eric. So, I mean, in addition to the fantastic play we saw from UTEP to start off the season here, one thing that's I think should be mentioned just in the scheme of like G5 football and when you compare it to like the amount of fan support that it gets compared to a lot of P5 programs these days is like, this game in Las Cruces was pretty significantly more attended than the UCLA Hawaii game in Los Angeles. So like, I, I feel like we've talked about it a bunch, but that's a testament to how good of a job that really both these programs have done cultivating the, just the culture around their programs, even in the midst of being pretty bad the last decade or so. Excuse me. Yeah, Joe, it's really interesting, right? I think it's, it could be a combination of three things. I don't want to discredit the point that you make about the culture. If anyone knows, it's Conference USA fans know. Win, lose, or draw, rain or shine, whatever you know phrase you want to use, UTEP, those are some of the most loyal fans really in college football. I mean, they, they the program's been on tough sledding over the past few years, yet they have a consistently loyal fan base and you may not be able to tell because the Sun Bowl is a stadium that can seat over 50,000 people. But, you know, for them to put 12, 13, 14,000 out there, despite the fact that what is this, the sixth win over the past uh, three years combined, or my memory serves me correct, three or four years. So they have a fan base. And New Mexico State as well has a solid following. So don't want to discredit that point as well. But I think it's a combination of A, this is a rivalry game, right? And B, it was kind of the only thing in town. Uh, so to speak, because, you know, it's week zero in the X amount of games. And also, I don't want to discredit, uh, you know, the play, or excuse me, the, the, the uh, for lack of a better term, the, the feeling around the pandemic that, you know, hey, we want something to get out there and be excited about. And that's football, right? I mean, you and I are here doing this podcast specifically because we're pumped up and fired up. So, you know, the fact that they were able to get out there and we're on the, the hometown team. And again, with those areas being such a close I, what was the you know the time flight time from UCLA to Hawaii? Was that five five and a half hours? We're from El Paso to Las Cruces, forty something minutes, I believe. So that also probably played a factor in the uh, 
size of the attempts, which I believe was somewhere around 19,000, 19,400. Numbers are incorrect. Eric, are you implying that there's less to do in Las Cruces, New Mexico than there is in Los Angeles, California? I'm implying there's less to do in Las Cruces, New Mexico than in 95% of the nation. <laughs> ah, fair enough. New Mexico, we love you. Don't take it too personal. Yeah, but here's here's one thing. Back to football. Um, based on uh, Jacob Cowling's performance in this game, we saw him catch just some really magnificent long balls, had that 172-yard catch um in the in the first quarter have we maybe underestimated how legit of a deep threat this guy is when you compare him to you know victor tucker and some of the other legit deep threat guys in the league uh i don't know if we've underestimated him or i I, you know i don't want to speak out of turn for anyone else i honestly know that that i've underestimated him as much as it's a combination of two things joe one when you're playing on a team that hasn't won very many games you don't get the recognition that maybe some other receivers get but also gavin hardison Listen, when it comes to UTEP's offense, the doubt for me has never been Jacob Kong and Justin Garrett and, you know, the, the litany of playmakers around him. It's going to be on the, the guy from Hobbs, New Mexico, and Gavin Hardison to prove that he can take that next step as a quarterback. So that's played a factor. But even when you look at last year, 41 grabs was just a shade under 700 yards. So he was averaging 16.8 yards per catch. Quick math is correct. 16, yeah, I think that's 16.8. Um, so – Clearly was established himself as a deep threat as is, just a matter of all the factors around him. So as long as UTEP wins games and Gavin Hardison continues to progress as a quarterback, he'll get his recognition. For sure. And if watching this UTEP team put up a 30-piece wasn't enough of a, a, you know, nice little opening dish CUSA football season, we've got plenty more to talk about this weekend. And believe it or not, we actually have four consecutive days of USA football, so plenty to talk about. But before we get going there, um, one of the uh, humors that happened in the world of high school football over the weekend, um, and we all know IMG Academy and how well they've done in the scheme of high school football on the national scale, that sort of thing. Uh, they did have a game against uh, a team from Ohio known as Bishop Sycamore. And if you haven't heard of Bishop Sycamore, there's a reason for that. They're an online school. They have only had a football program for two years, I believe. And they went 0-6 last season. That apparently did not stop them from securing a game against arguably the number one team in the country and getting said game televised on national TV on ESPN. uh, Clearly, they lied. (laughs) to get into this position but at the same time you almost have to respect the hustle because like how in the world do you pull this one on a brand so like renowned for their like research and their um you know just the quality of their overall product like espn it's again they lied borderline crime but (laughs) you have to you have to respect the effort i guess yeah, so when you ask the question, and we talked about this a little bit off here before taping, how does this happen? And the thought kind of came to mind. I'm going to assume that the folks at ESPN just figured IMG Academy, and for those of you who may, you know, the uninitiated in terms of IMG, it's a school about 90 minutes from where I am right now, 90 minutes south in the Bradenton area, and they are not just a football school. They are a IMG sports academy to where – Everything from men's basketball to tennis 
women's tennis. They are have you know nationally renowned programs and players and the whole nine, right? But so I can only assume that the folks at ESPN or whoever people are in charge of this game thought that IMG booked an opponent and they wouldn't book an opponent that they could hose 70 to zero. And for anyone who saw this game, I had a chance to watch about 10 minutes of it. They could have beaten this team 100 to zero had they truly wanted to. Uh, I will say this, Joe. Yes. And, and, and also, you kind of stunned me when you said that they're an online school. I did not know that. Uh, I did not know they only had a program a couple of years. I thought this were a bad school out of Ohio. But here's what I'll say. Sure, you gained your team some marketing, right? That goes to the old adage, is all press good press? Because I can tell you right now, the press they're getting ain't exactly good. Now, while ESPN is certainly feeling their fair share of the heat, they're looking at the people who, whoever was in charge of setting up this contest. And I don't want to be dramatic guy, right? You know, because I, I, I consider myself more old school than I am new critique us for this podcast. Probably say we're a little too, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, forward thinking in our, in, our, in our, you know, opinions. But here's, here's what I'm getting at, Joe. This would be like, to kind of put it in terms I hope all our listeners can understand, each state has their divisions, right, of school X versus school Y. In Florida, we have goes from 1B all the way up to 9A. This would be the equivalent of putting a lower-level college team versus a 1A high school team here in Florida. And when I say lower-level college team, they have 31 players on their roster with D1 offers. So that gives you a level of talent they have. At some point, I do have to agree with the announcers who call the game. It was Tom Luganville, and forgive me, I cannot remember the play-by-play guy, who said this could be a safety issue. When you have kids who are offensive linemen are 300 pounds and, you know, going to be playing D1 football, going to be against what it come out, so a glorified JV game for them. Listen, I, I, I get it, and I respect the hustle, but it's on a personal level. I, I would feel a little bit uneasy with putting out a, a roster that I know could not compete, not just on a talent level, but would be physically imposed as the way they were against IMG. Very solid point. I mean, when you talk about just the, again, the difference in size that IMG, you know, posed against a team like this, there was the very real chance that somebody was going to get hurt. And we didn't even mention, um, and this is a a big part of the story that um, USA Today put out on the situation, Bishop Sycamore played their previous game two nights before. And it doesn't take a genius. Sorry, I did not know that I did there. So they, yeah. they, they played a football game two nights prior to playing that game. Yeah, and then they came out two days later and played IMG wow. Academy. Wow. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I have no idea. This is such a head-scratcher in so many senses of the word. And, it, you know, you might be asking, like, why are we talking about this on this type of podcast? You know, we're, we're all for the growth of the game. And, honestly, a lot of the kids that are on this IMG team we're probably going to be talking about in a year, two years, three years, whatever. Um, and you know, we hope that the reputation of high school football in the U S and for me, for Ohio, like this is not a good representation of Ohio high school football at all. You could have put, you know, Dublin Kaufman, any team from the GCL South really against IMG. And I'm not saying they would have won, but it would have been 56 to six. Like, I don't know. It's frustrating for me that when you try to elevate high school football on this type of scale, this was such a colossal screw up on 
their part, on IMG's part, and on the the marketing group's part that helped them put this together. And it's funny, but more frustrating than anything. Joe, I'll wrap up my thoughts with this. And again, this is where you know you can accuse me of being a little too soft on this or, or, or whatever. But here's the deal, man. One of the things that I mentioned to you off here is that apparently the quarterback for this team, his Twitter, he lists himself as having a you know, three-star recruit and having these offers, which in actuality, when you do the research, he has none of those things. There is nothing about the, listen, everyone wants to play high school, everyone wants to play college football, everyone wants to go to the NFL. We all did at some point in time or another, right? Um, at some point in time, it has to be bigger than that. And uh, adults should be trusted to make better adult decisions than those things. So that's my two cents. Totally. And like this almost kind of falls into the vein of, I think it was two years ago, maybe last year, but there was the guy on Twitter who made an NCAA 14 character and basically made like recruiting directors think he was a real player. Like how that level of digital illiteracy exists at a division one football program and at the ranks of a place like ESPN, like blows my mind. It, you know, as someone with a lot of work experience and master's degrees in this kind of stuff, it's crazy to me that there are people who know that little about <laughs> the basics of their job in these positions. That's crazy. Um, but I think people have probably heard us rant enough about this. Unless you, unless you have another point here. Stumbled to another tweet about this. Their head coach has an active arrest warrant. Most of the players are junior college dropouts or nowhere near high school age. What? <laughs> the, the, the Bishop Sycamore thing. This gets more bizarre by the by by the, the minute, Joe. Uh, we could go to, to week zero. I'll send it to you on Slack so you can see for yourself. Oh my god! So yes. ESPN just got completely had. Yes, there has never been a Bishop Sycamore. They played two games in three days. Their head coach currently has an active arrest warrant. Most of the players are junior college drop. What in the world? How so does this happen? I'm going to read this story because that is bizarre. I. I guess I'll just conclude with like, this is insane that this, there was so little attention to detail in this entire process and they uh, compromised the, (laughs) the safety of both IMG and whoever these kids are by putting them in this kind of situation with like people that they clearly did no research on. That is insane to me. 1,000% agree, Joe. As we learn more about this story by seemingly the second, it just gets crazier. So we can uh, we get transition <laughs> from there. Yeah. So another entertaining, I, I guess, or just wild storyline to be watching as we head into the college football season. But with that, then I guess let's talk about some week one matchups. Um, to kick it off on Wednesday night, we have uh, Jacksonville State and UAB playing each other in the Montgomery kickoff game at 7.30 Eastern on ESPN. Nice little primetime slot there in the state of Alabama. Uh, Personally, I see no reason that UAB can't run away with this one. Um, In all the previews that have come out for like UAB season in the last week and a half or so, I think they all kind of hit on the same thing, which I agree with. This is one of the more balanced offensive attacks that we are going to see in G5 football this year between the kind of running back by committee situation they have going on to replace Spencer Brown, as well as uh, apparently a much improved Tyler Johnson III from last year. 
I think this is going to be a nice little tune-up game for them. Obviously, by no means the biggest challenge they're going to face this season. So um, I'm expecting Bill Clark to win this game by multiple touchdowns. It just so happens I've got this that I'm going to hold up here to my screen that uh, Joe can see. It's a press credential from last year's Jacksonville State game. So clearly I have a little bit of experience with this team. Here's the deal. I'll give you know 10 seconds on the Gamecocks. They do have some talented players, Joe. One of them is the Auburn drop down in terms of the quarterback, Zarek Cooper. He's a legit NFL prospect had things not played out the way they did last year with the COVID year and whatnot. He may have entered the draft, ended up getting hurt actually against FIU that game. So keep an eye on him. And then also a name that you are very familiar with, Mr. Londrigan, that is one Josh Samuel, former Western Kentucky Hilltopper, had his best career day as a collegiate athlete against FIU and that win, the upset of the Panthers. So clearly they do have some experience beating a CUSA team. However, UAB, very much the cream of the crop in terms of Conference USA, as you mentioned. The talented running back replacing Spencer Brown, keep an eye on Dwayne McBride, who had he had enough carries to be eligible for yards per carry or yards per attempt, excuse me, uh, he would have led the league in yards per attempt, averaged over 10 yards per carry. I believe he had 40 carries for 408 yards. So you do the math there, it's about 10 a pop. You mentioned the improved Tyler Johnson the third, the guy that I'm keeping an eye on, and I've gone on this rant uh, throughout the offseason, so I won't do the whole thing here, but offensive coordinator Bryant Vincent. You look at no matter the quarterback, right? The when you look at the stats of Tyler Johnson the third, if memory shows me correct, because I've said him so many times, 32 touchdowns, 17 interceptions. Not the best TD to INT ratio, but when you even look at the quarterbacks who have seen time outside of him, guys like Dylan Hopkins, Bryson Lacero, that TD to INT ratio was still one to one and a lot of downfield passing, which just seems rather odd considering the success that they've had running the football. You would think they'd set up some easy throws and things of that nature. So I want to see. And I'm not critiquing him as a play caller, right? I'm not going to pretend that I get eyes on every UAB game to make that assessment. I'm just looking at the numbers there and saying, how can they dial back the interceptions and keep the TDs in the right direction, get the completion percentage up? If they do that, this is UAB's division in terms of the West to lose. Absolutely. And I mean, that's really like all not even taking into account that UAB's defense, I think, is going to be significantly improved this year. Um so I think if any game is going to really give them a chance to show off all their flashy newish pieces, it's going to be this one. So might not be the closest game in the world, but a good way to kick off the weekend nonetheless on Wednesday night. Um, with that, let's move on to the Thursday night games. Uh, first off, we have uh, FIU and Long Island at 7 o'clock Eastern on ESPN3. So with Long Island, we have a team here that, um, you know, for good reason, doesn't get a lot of talk when it comes to the FCS football world. Um, but I'll give them one. Dope color scheme. <laughs> and, uh, you know, two, I, I do think that um, for – for them, it's it's good for their program to be, you know, getting these kind of matchups in. And for for FIU, look, based on what I saw from them last season, they need this kind of tune-up game. No, no, absolutely. For the uninitiated in terms of LIU, A, as you mentioned, fire color scheme, kind of digging the uh, 90s Mighty Ducks vibes there if they threw a little purple in there. But nevertheless, the deal is their head coach, longtime head coach Brian Collins was entering his 23rd year this year. He resigned, so... Offensive coordinator, quarterback coach Jonathan Gill will take over, former Akron quarterback. And he's got a situation here, a team that went 0-10 in their last full season of play. Then last year, if memory serves me correct, I think they went 1-3 or 2-2 in the spring uh, season that they played. Yeah, I think they went 2-2 in the spring season they played. 
but in their last full season went 0 and 10. So keep an eye on the main players, Jonathan DeBeek, the running back who uh, has been an all conference performer twice in his career, redshirt senior. The only reason I mentioned that is because we all know FIU struggles with run defense, right? It's one of the things that has plagued them over the past three years. With that being said, Vegas has set the line at 33 and a half. So it's fair to expect if that first win since November of 2019, if I had known the day that I left the Orange Bowl or the former Orange Bowl, now Marlins Park, would have been the last time the Panthers had won in this stretch, I, I would have lost a lot of money while we're betting on that. So I do expect the Panthers to win. Keep an eye on Max Bortenschlager, who was announced as the starter. Uh, give credit to Walter Villa of the Miami Herald, who reported that first and also confirmed that afterwards the former Maryland transfer will start for FIU. And uh, outside of that, the team is relatively healthy. I know the couple guys banged up may not see tight end Rivaldo Fairweather, but outside of that, the team should be fully healthy. And if they're going to get a win, it's going to be Thursday night. I, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I see no reason that FIU can't take care of business against this team. Um like I said, for UTEP, I think conference play is going to be the ultimate um, indicator of just how much this team has progressed over the last year and a half or so. Um, but for now, um, they should expect to start the season 1-0 and and uh, be able to fix some of the mistakes that they uh, saw in training camp and whatnot. Um, and I think the same is going to be said for Western Kentucky in this UT Martin game uh, and kicking off an hour after the Long Island game, uh, 8 o'clock Eastern on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, tops hosting the Skyhawks. Um, sure. Interesting name, but um, here's the thing about the all-time series between Western Kentucky and UT Martin, Eric. Last time this team played, it was in 2000 and the tops won it 71 to nothing. Now I don't think it's going to be quite that bad. Uh, UT Martin's not a terrible team, but a, we're going to see just how, you know, explosive this offense really is against a defense that's, not that great. And, you know, ultimately I think Western's biggest weakness is going to be in their defensive secondary, but they really don't even need them to have that good of a game in order to start the season one and oh, ultimately I think you're going to see Western's defensive line completely overpower uh, UT Martin's offensive line. And even if they don't get, you know, stops every series, I think they only really need a few because I don't think UT Martin's defense really has enough to contend with, in theory, what that passing attack on Western Kentucky should be. Joe, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little surprised that you are as confident, and even to go as far as to say that they don't even need their best game. 2018, the Hilltoppers lost to Maine. 2019, the Hilltoppers lost to Central Arkansas. 2020, the Hilltoppers won 13-10 to against Tennessee Chattanooga. I am not predicting that the Hilltoppers will lose this game. What I am saying is there's a history over the past three years of this team and some trouble, some troubles, excuse me, I almost said troubles and struggles because they had both struggles and troubles against an FCS opponent. The positive is while they've had a lot of roster turnover, they at least have some guys left on the roster who experienced these, these games and can attest we cannot take these guys, these guys lightly. So I do think that they will win. I'm going to be excited to see what the Zach Kidley-Bailey Zappy offense looks like. But I think for everybody involved over there in Bowling Green, they want to see the Hilltoppers come out and put up a 50 to zero, 50 to zero uh, win. To make a reference when we talked earlier in the podcast, they'd like to see an IMG Bishop Sycamore type of victory for the Hilltoppers. I mean, yes, for sure. And I'm not saying that... 
I'm overconfident because, you know, if one thing, if there's one thing I am, it's, I mean, it's probably overconfident. Let's be real. But I do think, like you mentioned, I think there's enough guys on that team who experienced both that main loss and the, the Central Arkansas loss from a few years ago who, you know, will go into that game knowing that they can't take their foot off the gas and, you know, be no disrespect to uh, like Ty Story, but I think the offense is a step above in terms of talent than what they've had the last couple of years. So, um, you know, in that regard, I think they just, we're just not going to see as many mistakes just because they've had the extra uh, snaps that like Bailey Zappi had at Houston Baptist. And I mean, you go back to like, you know, the Ty Story teams and all that, like Ty Story barely played before he even got to Western. So like, yeah, I think we can definitely expect to see Western Kentucky win this one pretty handily. But as you pointed out, they've had some trouble with FCS opponents in the past. So can't be too surprised if things get tricky. Um, and then on Friday, opening up with a really fantastic game, hopefully, Charlotte hosting the Duke Blue Devils at 7 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Network. And, you know, Eric, I think we've talked a lot about this game. We talked about it with Will Healy when he came on the show a couple weeks ago. This is a huge opportunity for Charlotte against a Duke team that wasn't very good last year, but you can never really count out all the way. David uh, David Cutcliffe is a Hall of Famer, as we know. But I think with Chris Reynolds under center, Vic Tucker – um, just being the, you know, just monster of a, a G5 receiver that he is. I think we're in for a really fantastic game. And as we talked about, I think this is going to be one of CUSA's marquee wins to start the year. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have the spread on that game offhand. I'm going to try to look it up as I'm doing this, but I will say this. I'm going to get right to the point with Charlotte. You mentioned Chris Reynolds and Vic Tucker. Need to see what the running game is going to look like. Elijah Turner, Calvin Camp. I still intrigued to see who are going to be that running back by rotation. Seems like Will Healy's mentioned a, a lot of his running backs there, but the uh, returner with the most experience is Calvin Camp. And I believe Elijah Turner is the highest rated recruit or highest rated uh, come out of high school of the group there. Calvin Camp, former receiver, guys, 5'8, 170. Here is the second key for me a defense. Who's going to emerge? Who's going to step up there for the 49ers? We know this much Tyler Murray's going to be there. Tyler Murray, it's going to take Charlotte Stars to play at the height of their level. Tyler Murray, a guy who was an all-conference performer at Troy, would have been on that pace last year had Charlotte played anything close to a full season. So if they can get that type of performance, and then special teams. Special teams has been a, 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 a point of emphasis over the offseason, excuse me, for Will Healy and his staff. There have been people around the program who felt that the special teams was kind of lacking. They have a solid kicker in Jonathan Cruz, but – in terms of the actual, you know, guys are out there covering kicks and making plays in that uh, um, that realm. It's felt like they've had some letdowns there. So if they can win in those three phases, I firmly believe at home that's going to be a fired-up, raucous crowd. I do not think it's going to be a quote-unquote Duke crowd. I think that's going to be a heavily uh, a heavy uh, Charlotte fan base there. And uh, listen, I, I will go on the record as picking Charlotte to win. Same here. I think it's going to be a really entertaining game. Um, And then at the same time, over on the ACC network, we'll have Wake Forest hosting Old Dominion at uh, at seven o'clock as well. Um, And I mean, look, Eric, we we've talked about, you know, Old Dominion didn't play at all last year. Ricky, new head coach, uh, first season at the helm for the Monarchs. And this Wake Forest team 
um, always seems to have some really solid offenses. And I think that's the reason they're favored by more than 30 heading into this game. So I think it's, you know, a smart pick on everybody's part to pick the Demon Deacons in this game. And I think it's a little bit of a bummer that we're not going to get to see Old Dominion get the tune-up opportunity that I think a lot of other uh, CUSA teams are getting. But, you know, ultimately, it's going to be a long road back for this Old Dominion program that hasn't, you know, really had a chance to show anybody what they can do in quite some time. From the Wake Forest side of things, I'm fired up to see Sam Hartman. If you're a QB1 fan, you know Sam Hartman. The, the kid went to the tiny school there, the tiny high school Oceanside Institute, and led them to the playoffs. Sorry, I'm just being nostalgic over QB1. I wish there were another year. Coming to the CUSA side of things, the first thing you obviously want to see, and Ricky Ronnie said during Conference USA Media Day that he won't be naming the starter. <laughs> Excuse me. He will name his starter to his team privately a week before the game. So his team should know. As far as publicly, they'll find out about five minutes before kickoff. So we'll wait to see whether it will be former UCF quarterback DJ Mack, former starter, the guy who started three of the final four games of them the last time this team played, and Hayden Wolf. And then don't forget that Stone Smart is also still there. And Stone Smart started the bulk of the games in 2019. A very freakish athlete. I, I can't remember if it was uh, Mark Schlebide. I, I shouldn't uh, attribute this to the wrong writer, but the the writer and I, I'll I'll go back and make this right later on. But who the writer who for ESPN publishes his list of college ball freaks in terms of guys who are crazy athletic and you know can run four fours at 350 pounds or whatever it may be. Stone Smart made his list as being a very athletic quarterback and in terms of just his his sheer ability as a playmaker. And that was expected of him when he got to the program in 2019, unfortunately, just his passing ability didn't necessarily show up. So we'll see out of those three guys, which one starts from my perspective, I'm expecting it to be the Norfolk hometown native and DJ Mack. We'll see what happens there. And then defensively, they lost Caleb Ford Dement, lost Keon White to power five programs. Well, Kit Ford Dement is not a Liberty. So make what you want of that. Uh, certainly a power five talent there, what they have this year. Um, Keon, Keon White at Georgia Tech. Want to see what they have left on defense. Uh, Jordan Young is returning, so he's got to keep an eye on. But overall, as you mentioned, Wake Forest is favored, and rightfully so. Right, and you mentioned Stone Smart. Like for context, this is a six-four QB. Like you know, I think we've we've kind of gotten used to like the Russell Wilson, you know, little guy types of quarterbacks having success in in football the last few years, but. Ultimately, when you get a signal caller who's that big and this good of an athlete, as you mentioned, then that's reason to be optimistic. You know, it, ultimately, it's going to take a lot of, you know, tweaking here and there to get Old Dominion back to where they were a few years ago. But if you have somebody like this under center, that's absolutely a step in the right direction. Um, so we'll see what he can do in uh, a tough spot against Wake Forest on Friday night. Moving on to Saturday then, kicking off that slate with Arkansas and Rice in Fayetteville there, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern on SEC Network Plus and ESPN Plus, which are basically the same thing. Um, Arkansas, pretty, I don't know, bottom of the barrel SEC, I think it's fair to say. That being said, um, it's been a tough road back for Rice. We still don't know who QB1 is going to be there. Uh, it's probably going to be a game-time decision, Wiley Green or Luke McCaffrey. Um, Ultimately, I think we're going to see this team, both teams really, need to be able to, as we've talked about with all these other teams, fine-tune some things, work out the kinks, but um, it's going to be tough to kind of judge where Mike Bloomgren is leading this team 
after this game, just because Arkansas, I think, has them outmatched athletically pretty significantly. Yeah, really quick, Joe, just to clean up my mistake there, because I am a stickler for proper attribution. Bruce Feldman of The Athletic was the one who published that piece. So just want to get that squared away. As we talk about Arkansas and Rice, as you mentioned, yeah, I think uh, you know Arkansas is kind of that subpar SEC team that exists, you know, the one that I won't subject our audience to my G5 rant in terms of if you move to Memphis up and Arkansas down, they'd be the same program, just legacy. But uh, yeah, they went three and seven last year under Sam Pittman in his first year with Felipe Franks, the former UF quarterback there. Not much success in as far as their rebuilding efforts. But when it comes to the Owls, you mentioned the game time decision at quarterback where it's going to be Luke McCaffrey, Wiley Green. I'm looking at the running back position. It's kind of interesting. We know the emphasis that, you know, uh, Mike Bloomberg's placed as far as intellectual brutality, want to run the football. Jordan Myers, it appears that he's successfully made the, tr- the, the the transition, excuse me, from tight end to running back, which is not a typical transition. But if you know anything about Jordan Myers, he's one of the most athletic guys in all of Conference USA. I'm looking at their depth chart now, and it has him and then the guy who you know was a true freshman last year and showed some flashes in Kalen Griffin, the, the Texan. Uh, played for a pretty prestigious program there in Texas and, and had some success as a true freshman. So that could be an interesting one-two punch there. And, of course, they get Brad Rosner back, who opted out of last year. They're going to have, in my opinion, I think Rice will have a fighting chance if they can play the same kind of ball game that they played at Marshall last year, right, which is run the football well, convert on third down, all those coach-speak things that guys like you and I are like, that's boring. We don't want to hear that. But it does win you football games. They can limit the turnovers do all of those things. I think they'll have a fighting chance, but I'm not ready to pick them just yet to upset Arkansas. I think that's a very fair assessment. Um, And when we talk about this next game, Navy and Marshall in Annapolis, 3.30 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Network, I think we're going to talk a lot of the – we're going to make a lot of the same points when it comes to controlling the ball. When you look at Navy's defense, not – Amazing, but not bad at defending the pass. They are very good at containing the run, though. So with that, ultimately, this is going to come down to Grant Wells being able to limit his mistakes and control the pace of the game. Because Navy is going to try to do the exact same thing on the opposite side with their option offense, right? They're going to run the clock out and try to keep him off the field as much as possible. So when Wells is on the field, it's going to be interesting to see what adjustments Charles Huff and that staff have made to his game in order to, you know, limit the mistakes and the, uh, I think he, he had some problems making good decisions towards the end of last season. That's ultimately why we saw Marshall fall off as hard as they did. But this is going to be a very good test to see how far he's come in the last couple of months um, with this new staff. And uh, it's, it's going to be a tough one. But, you know, ultimately, I think it's going to be a very close game based on those two things. Couldn't agree with you more, Joe. This one is very much a toss up in my mind. And when you look at Navy, they actually lost a player to Conference USA, Bowling Green native Jamel Carruthers, who transferred down and transferred, or I shouldn't say transferred down, but transferred back home, I should say, to Western Kentucky. But that was a key cog in Navy's offense last year. So it's going to be interesting to see how they fill that. And anyone who knows Navy football knows that the ground game is a huge part of how they move the ball and score points. It's one of those things, Joe, that it's unique. And I don't know your thoughts on this. You look at, take, for example, Florida Atlantic last year when they played Georgia Southern. It is very hard to prepare for an offense that you're only going to see it realistically once a year, right? Because it's not like everyone in the college football is running that offense. Now, the benefit is 
they've had all offseason to prepare for that offense, as opposed to Florida Atlantic's case last year, they had a week, right? So that's the big difference. In terms of the herd, what I am looking forward to seeing is how can they replace the losses up front? Kane Madden, of course, makes the transfer. They lost an offensive lineman as recently as a couple of weeks ago, the transfer from North Carolina, the hometown kid who was going to come home and play for them and chose to leave football. So those things up front, you want to give a young quarterback who's looking to find himself in year two proper protection. Not that they don't still have solid offensive linemen up front, but want to see how those things play a factor. Also, who steps in and replaces Brendan Knox? We know the, the success that he's had on the ground game over the past two or three years there at Marshall. So we'll see that. You talked about Grant Wells. I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head as far as that's concerned. Last but not least, I want to see what identity that this team strikes in week one, right? We've had over a decade of kind of what we could expect from a Doc Holiday coach team. But all the, the rage about Coach Huff is that things are going to be a, a little bit different. We had Grant Trailer on the podcast. He said that we might not see as many 20 to 13 games or 24, you know, 19 games. Could see a few more points on the scoreboard. You know, offensive coordinator Tim Cramsey, the only holdover from last year's squad. Definitely want to see how he and Coach Huff mesh. All in all, if I'm going to make a prediction, I'm leaning towards taking Marshall, but it would not shock me. And this is very much a 50-50 game. Completely. And the crazy thing about the triple option and the thing that I love about it, honestly, is it's this like it feels like it's this ancient like piece of wisdom within football. Right. Like for as how for how long it's been around, you would think people would have it figured out by now. But ultimately, when you look at like I assume there's like one manual that every defensive football player gets just how to defend the two pages on the triple option are just always stuck together, right? Like ultimately it's not that complicated, but every once in a while you see, but you see somebody who just can't figure it out. And hopefully for Marshall's sake, they're not that team on Saturday. I'll say for Marshall's sake, especially, I, I don't want to say there's, you know what, Joe, real quick, we can do 20 seconds on this. Do you feel that coach Huff is got to be one of the coaches with the most pressure entering this year, just given what he took over? Because that's the only thing I was going to say is that I just wonder, it's one game, you can't make or break a season in one game, but what would be the feeling in Huntington if they come out and lose this one and, you know, you dismiss one of the more successful coaches in Marshall history? I don't know that he has the most pressure. Um, Ultimately, I mean, just from my perspective, I think um, Stock still has a little more pressure on on him down in Middle Tennessee, but there's a lot of different pieces to that. But ultimately, I I do think there is a significant amount of pressure on Huff because of, like you mentioned, he's taken over for Doc Holliday, a guy who was there for a long time. The fans generally liked, won a lot of games, and B, he is inheriting some pretty important pieces. Not to mention, he's coming from the coaching tree of, you know, a guy in Nick Saban who's I think in the in the conversation for sure of greatest college football coach ever but all those things ultimately amount to a lot of pressure yes so it's going to be interesting to see what he can do in this season and in this game in particular sure couldn't agree with you more there and then we have mississippi state hosting at louisiana tech at 4 p.m eastern on espnu look i think this is one of those games where uh mississippi state again i don't think they're going to make any national waves this season, that being said, still a very solid team. Um, ultimately, I think they are going to come away with the victory in this game, but plenty of stuff to watch out for if you are a Louisiana Tech fan. Ultimately, just all the new offensive pieces 
Um, you know, at running back, you have the App State transfer at, uh, and then you have the West Virginia transfer at quarterback, who I believe has been named QB1. So coming into this, I think there's plenty to watch out for. I think it's going to be a decent test, but ultimately Mississippi State's just the better team. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because when projecting this game in the offseason, I was wondering if we were going to get the opportunity to see Jack Abraham again. But Jack Abraham is not the starter at Mississippi State, so that'll be interesting. We know Mike Leach and the type of offense he's looking to run, very much kind of the air raid. It's just ironic that, you know, we're talking about Bailey's happy and all that, but one of the godfathers of the air raid and Mike Leach is there at Mississippi State, and we'll see how Louisiana Tech will be able to defend that. They're very much equipped. They've got a very good secondary, guys like B.J. Williamson. You know, it'll be interesting to see how guys like Tyler Grubbs, you know, a linebacker, of course, is used to making plays behind the line of scrimmage. They're probably going to ask him to do more as far as playing in space and, you know, how that will play out. If they can get a pass rush, that's going to be key. Willie Baker is back. Like, that's a name we've been talking about for how many years in Conference USA. He is still at Louisiana Tech. See how that plays out in the offensive football. You mentioned the Appalachian State transfer. That is Marcus Williams Jr. Definitely want to see how he fares as RB1. This is his opportunity to be the lead back as opposed to being one of a trio or sometimes a quadruple, quadruplet, whatever that phrase is, uh, in terms of having four running backs. Um, so it mentioned to see how that plays out. They certainly have the talent of receiver. We know they have Griffin Abair, you know, Smoke Harris, guys like that. And you mentioned Austin Kendall, the West Virginia transfer. We'll see what he looks like when they take on the Bulldogs. I'm going to go out on a limb. I think this one's going to be a little bit closer than most. And you know what? I'll pick 10. Okay. Upset alert. You heard it. Um, you know, I think it's going to be, like you mentioned, a very – Good game. I don't know how close it's going to be. I'm going to say I don't think Mississippi State wins this by more than two touchdowns. But like you mentioned, I think there's there's too many. I don't want to say question marks because we know there's tons of talent on this Louisiana Tech offense. But I'm just I'm intrigued to see how all these pieces fit together, if that makes sense. I feel like they they have a lot of like. It's like a really good like barbecue dinner. You have a lot of these really good side dishes. Ultimately, I don't know how well it's going to cohesively fit together, but it's going to be delicious. And by delicious, I'm entertaining if you like scoring touchdowns. So we'll see how well Skip Holtz can kind of fit it all together uh, in these first couple of weeks of the season. After the Mississippi State game, we have Middle Tennessee and Monmouth on ESPN3 at 7 p.m. Eastern on uh saturday here uh look i think for mtsu this is the kind of opportunity that they need to start the season with we really don't know what uh what to expect out of them this year but opening up against a monmouth team that's not great um i think that's ultimately going to be the thing that they need to really kind of start figuring out what they need to do in order to elevate their program above where it's been the last couple of seasons could not agree with you more. I will just kind of echo those sentiments as I have throughout the entire podcast. Here's a deal for Middle Tennessee. They need to put the last two years behind them. Not necessarily that they've been some, you know, abysmal, bad, horrendous team. It's just a matter of, in terms of what Rick Stockstill is looking to do, he, he's, when you look at, Joe, really quick, you look at Rick Stockstill's record, it's two games over 500. And you, you think, it's almost shocking because the guy who's had what seven bowl appearances, I believe off the top of my head. So they're used to going to bowl games. We know the success they had under Brent Stock still, of course, makes his return as the receivers coach. 
all things considered, they just need to get out to a good start and put, like I said, the last two years of non-bowl eligibility behind them. And that starts with the shift in the offense. We know it's going to be the NC State transfer in Bailey Hockman. That is a shift away from the Asher O'Hara, of course, is one of our favorite players in all of college football. But, you know, the style of football that Asher plays will be much different from the one that Bailey Hockman will engineer on the offense. When I asked Rick Stockstill at Media Day, how important was it for his team to get more production out of the run game in terms of just the running backs themselves? I mentioned the fact that Shatan Mobley is the leading rusher for this team. And you look at the past four years, they haven't had a rusher rush more than 600 yards. That was Shatan Mobley in 2018. Rick Stockstill said that not only is it key for him to get more production out of the running backs and the two high, you know, highly touted transfers they have in Amir West, for, excuse me, Amir Rasul, from Florida State, almost mixed up Terrell West, former Middle Tennessee State running back, Amir Rasul from Florida State, and Martel Petway from West Virginia. Not only do they want more production from them, but he thinks that there's more production to be had in the passing game with guys like Jaron Pierce and Yusef Ali and C.J. Windham. So it'll be interesting to see how all of those things develop. And last but not least, Scott Schaefer's defense has been trending in the wrong direction over the past few years. I believe they gave up a total of 38 points per game last year got to get that down so it'll be interesting to see how all of those things pan out but yeah it's going to be interesting to see how hawkman you know kind of takes over this offense and i don't know i don't want this to sound hot takey but can i make an nfl comparison for rick stockstill uh uh marvin lewis uh, a guy who was the head coach of the Bengals for a long time and in my opinion painfully average Stock's still starting to trend that way for me. I, I absolutely think he has the tools to kind of turn it around, but it's getting to that point. As you mentioned, he's only two wins over 500. I think he is writing the, um, you know, goodwill from how good that team was like at this point, close to a decade ago. So I really want it, you know, I don't know. I, for his sake, it'd be nice if he can kind of take advantage of some of these tools that he has in his repertoire now and push this program past all the negativity of the last two, three years. But unfortunately that's kind of where it's starting to trend for me. Spot on. Number 13, Florida in the swamp against FAU 7:30 PM Eastern on sec network. Uh, Nikosi Harry QB one for the owls. Ultimately, I think that's the best decision for that team. Um, Look, I think this is going to be an interesting game. I think ultimately, if FAU has any problems, I think it's going to be how like disjointed they've kind of felt, even with all the talent that they have. We'll see if Taggart can put it together. And, I mean, look, this is not the, like, Jim McElwain era of, of Florida. You know, no disrespect to Jim McElwain, but, like, Florida's getting there again in terms of, you know, high-level teams. So, ultimately, I think the Gators are going to pull this one out. I think they have too much going in their favor for them not to win this game. But it's going to be an interesting test to see where Nikosi Perry has been since he was the guy at the U and where, ultimately, Taggart has this team just in general. Joe, again, spot on. Because I think this, when you, you mention it, for me, this is a test to see there are very high hopes internally in Boca Raton. And now some of that's kind of trended outwards and externally, right? People believe that this team can be a, a team that contends for a CUSA East title, right? So people think that, you know, some of the hype of Marshalls is, is a little bit overblown and that FAU, you talked about their defense and how they were a year ahead of schedule in terms of their production, how well they performed. If they can get above average quarterback play from Nikosi Perry, 
that almost locks them into a seven, eight win team. If they can get Nikosi Perry coming out of high school, the expectations that you had when, you know, he saw his first extended action at UM, then you're talking about a team that can really contend. Am I saying that they're going to upset Florida? No. But what I am saying is this is a really good litmus test to see where this program is, especially for those few people, those those skeptics in the FAU camp, and there are those who, who exist, who are just wondering what things are kind of shaping up to be post Lane Kiffin and now in year two of Willie Taggart. This could be a great test. Go in there and push Florida, and you see you at least kind of set the expectation that, okay, we're, we still are cream of the crop. Yeah, we might not have – you know, or excuse me, they do have two conference titles. Same thing as UAB. So it, it, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle, right? They're they're right there. When everyone's talking about UAB and their success, FAU should be right there. It's just the fact that you know Willie Taggart wasn't the coach of those teams. So I think it's a really good opportunity for the going for them to go in there and make a statement. Yeah, and uh, we'll see what they're able to do in Gainesville. But uh, meanwhile, in North Texas, we're going to see what the Mean Green can do against uh, Northwestern State. Uh, I know it's not their team, but as I was doing my research uh, for this game, uh, my fiance came in and looked at Northwestern State's mascot and was like, ah, the Fighting Satans. So that's just what they're known in my brain as now. Because um, <laughs> I, I believe they're the the Devils, the Sun Devils. That's not, not the Sun Devils, but uh, now it's going to bother me. Demons. Okay, that that makes more sense. Um, but you always be the fighting satans to me. Uh, 7:30 p.m. on ESPN three. Uh, look, I mean, this is going to be the tune-up that North Texas needs. We've talked about that, you know, over the course of this week. I think that's kind of the theme for these FCS matchups. But you know, Seth Luttrell, I think, needs one of these games to kind of assess what he has left. Um, that defense, in particular, is going to need some some snaps against you know a less high power uh, opponent than what they're going to see against like SMU in a couple of weeks, for example. So I think North Texas wins this game. And I, this is the game where I just genuinely don't really know what we're in for other than a probable North Texas win. It's funny, Joe, you say that this is the tune of the North Texas needs. It sure as hell better be because they can't get any worse defensively. I mean, they allowed over 40 points per game last year. They need a statement that they are a different team defensively. Offensively, we know that they'll be able to carry the water. Of course, you want to see what happens with the quarterback situation. Is it going to be Jace Reuter? Is it going to be Austin Ani? I've seen some you know things come out of Denton that even Case and Martin are still kind of involved in the QB race. I, I don't see that happening, but uh, I think it's going to come down to Austin Ani and Jace Reuter. We'll see how many uh, if we get one of those guys playing or is it both is it two quarterbacks like last year definitely want to keep an eye on that also oscar Attaway the third lost for the year i don't believe we talked about that in our last podcast he suffered a torn acl so now when you look at they had a three-headed monster when they had deandre tory trey Siggers, and then oscar Attaway. now you take oscar Attaway. he is no longer part of that mix trey Siggers, his talents are at southern methodist that means it is fully the DeAndre Torrey show, and they're still in good hands. DeAndre Torrey had just a shade under 1,000 yards and 15 touchdowns in 2018, his first year at North Texas, then kind of you know fell behind the depth chart a little bit. So we're still in good hands, but again, defensively. Third defensive coordinator as many years, we got to see what's going to happen. Yeah, agreed. So we'll see what North Texas has in store for themselves um, against a, a tough – well, not a tough opponent. Uh, a tough to decipher matchup really against Northwestern state on Saturday. Uh, and then we have Illinois hosting UTSA 7:30 PM on the big 10 network. And 
look, Eric, I don't know if you watched a little bit of Illinois' win over Nebraska this past weekend. Um, I did, and I will admit, the Illini looked better than I thought. Um, that says a lot about Scott Frost's situation with the Huskers, but that's a topic for another time. Uh, I said over the summer that I think UTSA will win this game. I still think that, but I think it's going to be closer than we originally thought based on what I saw out of Illinois in week one or week zero, rather. Yeah, something that's interesting. You talk about how good Illinois looked. UTSA head coach Jeff Trailer kind of had this funny quip from earlier today in the presser. He said that he doesn't have much empathy for Illinois losing their starter, which they did. And Brandon Peters, he said, when they're down to their fourth guy like we were in San Antonio last year, and they can holler at us. <laughs> so uh, clearly, you know, uh, Coach Trailer with a sense of humor. Now, I, I don't think he was being, you know, callous about it. It's just the fact that they had to go through multiple quarterbacks last year. So it doesn't feel any sort of. Empathy or whatnot. He's out there to go there and win a win a ball game. I do think for Illinois losing Brandon Peters, I was firmly in the UTSA camp before. I'm even more firm in that now. Despite the fact that Illinois did look pretty good, that was against who, Joe? Just remind me really quick. <laughs> the Nebraska Corn Huskers. Correct. Yeah. And listen, Scott Frost looks older and older by the day. And no, that is not the UCF alum and me critiquing Scott Frost. I didn't critique the guy for taking the job. You know, you want to coach in a state that's near and dear to him. But yeah, the wins have been few and hard, uh, few and far between, excuse me, for Scott Frost and, and Lincoln. So, yeah, I, I'm not exactly going to say that's a, you know, a, a huge world beater of a win for Illinois. Book it. Give me UTSA. Sincere McCormick, Rashad Wisdom and the crew. I think they get the victory. No disagreement here. And you, know, you mentioned that, you know, Jeff Trailers, um comment about being down to their their third or fourth string quarterback whatever it was ultimately i think that kind of attitude is gonna take his team a long way it's a very next man up type of mentality and we've seen that attitude win championships really um so you know i think illinois is getting better and kudos to them for dealing with injuries the way they have but like you said i don't think nebraska is really a good litmus test for anybody at this point unfortunately because Look, I'll go to Lincoln and crush some Runza anytime you want to go, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that for sure. All right. Um, then we have South Alabama hosting Southern Miss, 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, look, South Alabama has a ton of question marks. And while there's almost definitely going to be some kinks to work out for Southern Miss, I firmly believe they're the more talented team going into this one. So I expect Southern Miss to get the win. Um, I'm intrigued to see you know, what the difference is between this team and what last year's team are going to be. And I think this is going to be a pretty decent indication of what that's going to be. Yeah, Joe, well, I, I agree with you there. But listen, USA, South Alabama, they're going to be fired up. They beat that team last year at the Rock. Now they got them this year at USA. And that's a team that, you know, sneaky, I don't want to say rivalry, but they want to prove that last year wasn't a fluke. Now, in terms of the Golden Eagles side of things, I fully expect them to rebound and win. I don't necessarily think it'll be a blowout or anything crazy, but I think they'll have a decisive win, maybe by two scores. I think Trey Lowe playing his first full year without having the inter interruption interference of baseball will be interesting to watch, but I think will be even more interesting to watch is his development in Will Hall's offense, one that has produced very, very good numbers for quarterbacks. Look what he did last year at Tulane uh, with the freshman quarterback. Of course, his name has escaped me when I, I, I need to know. Michael Pratt. There we go. Michael Pratt from uh, um, Boca Raton. 
I think, uh, you know, in terms of Trey Lowe, he's a very good fit in that offense. Frank Gore Jr., we know what he can do. Jason Brownlee is a name you need to keep an eye on. He is a big play guy, just like the receiver UTEP Jacob Collins that we talked about earlier and defensively. We're getting some guys who opted out last year. So all in all, I think the Golden Eagles will win, but let's not, you know, let's not dismiss South Alabama. They they won that game last year. I think they're eager to prove now they've got it this year. At uh, or excuse me, not Hancock Whitney Stadium. It's it's the new stadium, uh, which I don't know the name, but I think they'll be eager to prove that you know they're more than worthy of, of winning that game. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you mentioned like the the quarterback play for uh, Southern Miss. You know, it, it feels like we've been waiting like a decade to see you know Trey Low really get like set loose on uh you know, on a Southern Miss opponent. Um, it, I don't know why just time passes so slowly in COVID, but we didn't really get to see him, you know, play with like, I think the right set of circumstances when he did get to see the field like last season and the season uh, before rather. So with a healthy team and ultimately a much needed cultural shift in USM football, in my opinion, I'm excited to see what he can do with the reins of this team in his hands. Yeah. I mean, I'll just add to that. You look at what happened last year when he had a full week to prepare as the starter, they upset FAU. That was the only real week last year where he had, you know, kind of, you're the guy we're going to put in a game plan for you. That plays your strengths. And he performed really well. And I, I got it right on USA. It's a, they're currently at Hancock Whitney stadium. They're replacing lad peoples. So just my random uh, facts of college football that I saw spin through my head throughout a daily basis. Wanted to correct that, but no, agreed on Trey Lowe. I, I think listen, I think he's primed for a, a really big year. You talk about the fact that he didn't really get a chance to play much. Of course, transferred from West Virginia, so you know clearly West Virginia's had uh, a litany of good quarterbacks that they've sent to now to Conference USA and Austin Kendall and now Trey Lowe. But uh, definitely excited to see what he can do as a full year, a full offseason, excuse me, as the starter, and you know. I, I, again, I, I'm really, really excited. Will Hall in that offense, he's going to be able to use his legs and, and, and he'll have an opportunity to make plays. So we'll see how it starts in week zero. Yeah, for sure. And rounding out the slate, we have UTEP against Bethine Cookman in El Paso, 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN3 for all the night owls out there. And uh, UTEP ultimately, I think, is going to get the win at home to start the season 2-0. Uh, look, we, we talked a lot about the offensive weapons that UTEP is in the process of developing at the top of the show, Bethy and Cookman, again, you know, I, I don't think they're necessarily the, the pride of the MIAC at this point, um, but not a bad program by any stretch of the imagination, but I think UTEP is a better team right now. And it's weird that, you know, you look at where we were three seasons ago and ultimately I wouldn't, I don't know that I would pick UTEP against a team like Bethy and Cookman then, but now I can confidently say that Gavin Hardison and company have uh, have a, a surefire win in front of them here. Yeah, you would have to think that that in terms of UTEP welcoming Bethune Cookman, and you mentioned them not necessarily being the pride of the MEAC. They're a solid MEAC team. It's a team that's won seven games for the past three years or four years, if memory serves me correct. And their offensive coordinator, Alan Suber, is a guy I went to high school with, Tampa Catholic High, so I'm going to shout out, you know, Superman, as we used to call him. Nevertheless, uh, <laughs> solid MEAC team, solid HBCU team, but just all in all, this is the type of game, Joe, and we, as I think it's a fitting that we end the podcast this way because we talked about in the, in the opening, this is the game that UTEP in years prior, they would win, but it would 
come down to a last second field goal or they have to make a play and it looked like they're going to get upset against an FCS team, right? We saw what they did against New Mexico State. They need to come out and just hammer things down early. That'll make the statement in my mind, while it's not the two greatest wins in the world, it's at least a statement that this is in some way, somehow, some shape or form, some fashion, a different UTEP team than we've seen over the previous years of the Dana Dimmel administration and the last year of the Sean Kugler era. So definitely come out and hammer that, and I will take UTEP, but um, definitely an opportunity for him to make a statement. It's interesting. You also have a personal Bethune Cookman connection. Uh, one of my teammates played there uh, and was an all MEAC pick in uh, 2017. What's up, Chris Adams? But anyway, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting week zero slate for Conference USA. Um, should be a lot of really entertaining games, starting with that Jacksonville State UAB game on Wednesday night. Uh, this podcast should be up by then, fingers crossed. But thank you all so much for listening. I know it's been a long, long offseason, and we are so excited to finally be here in this moment watching live football again. So coming back next week, we will break down the week two matchups as well as what we saw in week one. And of course, underdogdynasty.com every day for more G5 football content and uh, subscribe on Apple or Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is. And uh, we'll be there to chat with you all and watch it all go down. Uh, Happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you real soon.